This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, where we discuss developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at the firm. Today, we're joined by Kristen Olson, Global Head of the Alternative Capital Markets Group within the Consumer and Investment Management Division at Goldman. We'll talk to Kristen about the alternative space and what's been driving interest from investors, both recently, post-COVID, and over the longer term. Welcome, Kristen, to the program. Thanks, Jake. Thanks for having me. Before we jump in, introduce yourself, Kristen, give a quick summary of your role and your uh, tenure here at the firm. Sure. So, Jake, I'm a Goldman Sachs lifer. I've been here for, it'll be 22 years this July. I started at the firm after undergrad at Georgetown. So I started my career as an analyst in investment banking in the financial institutions group. And I moved over to the investment management division, now the consumer and investment management division in 2001, to work in alternative capital markets. And that's the group that I lead today. So I've spent really almost all of my career in alternatives. Alternative Capital Markets sits within the Private Wealth Management Division at Goldman, and my team's responsible for the entirety of the alternative investments platform in terms of the investment opportunities that we show to our global private wealth management clients. So this includes really sourcing, structuring, uh, and ultimately marketing these opportunities to our clients. So my team really curates the calendar of opportunities, and we liaise with both the internal investing areas at Goldman Sachs that focus on alternatives, as well as spending a lot of time looking for best-in-class external managers in the old space. Very cool. So we'll get two decades plus of your wisdom here. Let's start with just definitionally, the word alternatives get thrown around a lot, but let's define exactly what we mean when we say alternatives. So I guess at a high level, I would describe alternative investments almost by what they are not. So really, alternative investments is a catch-all for really anything that's not cash or traditional asset classes like public equities or public fixed income. So really a broad term includes a number of sub-asset classes and strategies. So I'd really break it down into four main sub-asset classes. So private equity, private real estate, private credit, and hedge funds. But really, even within these categories, you've got a number of strategies. So for example, if you take private equity, that consists of a whole spectrum of opportunities that range from you know, venture capital on one end of the spectrum, which is looking to invest in really early stage companies or even concepts, if you think of angel investing, you know, through growth equity, which is looking to fund these companies through their growth stage, to the more traditional you know, LBO space that we're familiar with, where you're investing in large established private companies or potentially public companies that you're looking to take private. And then even the other end of the spectrum, which is distressed investing. So really, all of that you know, fits under the private equity banner. And then you turn to private real estate, and we could be talking about yield-oriented core strategies at one end of the spectrum, value-added strategies that would be a mix of yield and capital appreciation, or again, at the other end of the spectrum, opportunistic investing, looking at non-performing loan portfolios or even real estate development, each really with a different risk return profile. So you'll see you know, even a similar range of sub-strategies under hedge funds and then private credit as well. You know, I'd also note that alternatives tend to be characterized by limited liquidity, right, and illiquidity. And I think that's another one of the key defining points of alternatives, whereas traditional asset classes are typically viewed as kind of daily liquidity instruments. So, you know, our perspective is that adding alternatives to investment portfolios should improve the overall risk return profile, you know, if you can size that allocation appropriately. So obviously the alternative space grown dramatically over the last 20 years. What's been driving the growth in the alternative asset class? So, you know, much of this growth has been driven by the large institutional allocations that have come from, you know, sovereign wealth funds, pension funds, as well as endowments. 
see a lot of folks would look to examples like the Yale Endowment or you know, CPPIB, the Canadian Pension Plan Investment Board. You know, and these are examples of large investors that have allocated almost half their assets to alternatives. And while you know, these are really outliers at 50%, we have seen increases across the board to alternatives from pension funds and others. So if you look at the average pension fund allocation to alternatives, it's gone from about 11% six to you know, over 26% or so you know, a decade or so later. And this growth in alternatives has also been matched by the interest we've seen on the private client side. And so just to give some of our own perspective at Goldman, you know, if I look at what we've seen in alternative capital markets, last year, 2019, was frankly a record year for us in terms of capital commitments to alternatives from our clients. And you know, I think there's a number of reasons for this. So you know, one, I think an evolution in terms of the size and the sophistication of our clients so, you know, our portfolios have grown for our private clients, but more importantly, the sophistication levels of our clients has also increased. You've seen the rise of family offices and you've just seen investors more and more invest for the long term. And particularly on the private wealth side, you know, think about investing for multiple generations with a long-term investment horizon, which has lent itself well to thinking about, you know, alternatives in many cases have kind of five to 10 year types of duration across private equity and private real estate. So, you know, we've spent a lot of time over the past decade really educating clients about the role of alternatives in a portfolio and how to build a thoughtful allocation. And I think the punchline of it is that it takes time, right? It takes many years to build up to a target alternatives allocation in a portfolio. And it takes consistency, you know, allocating year in and year out in order to get to your target. If you look at you know, our investment strategy group's recommendation for a moderate risk U.S. taxable client, we would advocate for almost a 25% allocation to alternatives in the portfolio. So that's grown over time. And obviously, that's a quite significant allocation. And the lion's share of this, call it 14.5% of it, would be to private equity with the balance spread across private credit, infrastructure, you know, core real estate, and hedge funds. So I think, you know, part of the growth has been just sort of as we've done portfolio construction, we've advocated for a big allocation. But then I just think about clients and you think about the fact that they've been increasingly turning to private equity as they turn away from what's been a challenging public market to put new money into. So I think if we thought about, you know, pre-COVID-19, clients were feeling that we were very much, you know, late cycle and were cautious, right, about adding further to equities, you know, with PEs at you know, 21 times at multiples at the end of 2019 and remaining elevated, frankly, today. And so I think while private equity valuations are also elevated, investors have seen the alpha that private equity has been able to generate over public equities over long periods of time to the extent that they can build a thoughtfully diversified private equity portfolio. So I think that compelling long-term performance is another one of the reasons that we've seen a big shift to alternatives and to private equity in particular. And to give some context, I would say, you know, investors to be compensated for that illiquidity are looking for several hundred basis points of outperformance over the public equity market equivalent, right? So I think, you know, having looked now at several decades of performance as, you know, the private equity industry has now really reached kind of a maturation point, I think investors are convinced of the ability of these managers to generate alpha over kind of their options in the public equity markets. And so that's been another big driver of that shift. So you referenced the growth of sub-asset classes within alternatives. And it wasn't that long ago, say 20 years ago or so, that people just put money into a buyout fund. But today, as you mentioned, you've got private credit, private infrastructure, alternative yielding strategies. What's catalyzed the growth in these sort of subsectors? 
So I think kind of this widening of the scope of alternative investment strategies has been developing for some time. Part of this, as I referenced, a maturation of the industry and investors growing more comfortable investing in liquid alternatives, increasing their allocations. And as the same time, investment managers have been able to pursue a wider range of investment opportunities through alternative investment structures. I think the most notable sub-asset class that we've seen emerge has been private credit. So this has really emerged in the wake of the global financial crisis. So I think as we all remember, bank balance sheets were incredibly stretched coming out of the financial crisis. And that was coupled also with, in the US at least, and also in Europe, you know, big regulatory changes, which made it quite challenging and costly for banks to lend the way they had in the past. And so what this resulted in was the emergence of private credit funds and non-bank actors that came in to address the gap. So middle market companies were finding very difficult to access capital. And as a result, you saw the burgeoning private credit markets emerge. You know, I think the numbers are something like $45 billion in private credit in 2000 to a number that's projected to be closer to a trillion dollars by the end of this year. So it's been pretty incredible, the growth that we've seen there. You know, from the investor perspective, you know, with rates going lower and lower, the opportunity to generate, you know, mid to high single digit yields in private credit that can approach low double digit returns if you add a little bit of leverage has been quite compelling. So, you know, these returns, frankly, rival what investors might be thinking about in terms of target equity level returns, but come with seniority in the capital structure. And so that risk return dynamic, I think, has been quite compelling for investors across the board, both institutional and private clients. The other asset class I would mention that where we've seen tremendous growth, frankly, has been growth equity in the private equity side. And particularly if you think about what's happened in technology on the venture side, and this has really been fueled by, I think, a change in the desire of venture-backed businesses to go public. Right. And so you saw a lot of these tech leaders deciding to stay private for much longer and were able to fund themselves using private equity capital. And so that's led to a tremendous proliferation of growth equity funds. If you think about the fact that, you know, Amazon went public in 1997 with a $440 million market cap, you know, today worth over a trillion dollars, you know, investors were able to participate in that technology sector in the growth in a public expression. And that is much less so true today. Right. And you look at these big tech companies that are staying private significantly longer, going public much later in their life cycle, as we've seen evaluations of 30, 40, 50 billion dollars. And I think investors have realized that if they want to participate in that sector of the economy and the growth of that technology sector, they have to do it in a private expression. And so hence, you know, this growth equity sector has really emerged over the past decade as well. I know it's very hard to generalize about something as cataclysmic as COVID-19, but broadly speaking, what has been the impact of the current crisis on the demand for alternatives? So I guess I would say right now, I think investors are by and large taking stock of their portfolios overall, right? So spending time evaluating, what do I currently own? What's the status of what I currently own? And importantly, what's the liquidity profile I have? So I think investors are having a little bit to re-underwrite the pace of expected distributions as well as capital calls. I think investors who were active during the financial crisis will recall the lengthening of duration that we saw in their alternatives portfolio, you know, and frankly, the protracted period where there were much fewer distributions than people had planned on. But in that period of time, thankfully, fewer capital calls as well. So I think the result of this post-COVID is in the short term, we might see a bit of a pause as investors do this diagnostic on their current exposures. But so far, you know, what we've seen is, has been that we have not seen a fall off of interest in alternatives and investors continue to make new commitments to alternatives at a pre-COVID pace. Now, I think some of this is what I referenced, kind of this education of the client base that this is a strategic asset class. 
right? And this is not something that you market time and you need to make commitments regardless of the broader market environment. And I think investors realize this. And so they're pushing ahead with their core commitments with this understanding that vintaging your private equity portfolios is important in terms of generating that alpha over public equity markets. So clients are taking this long-term view. You know, and if I think back over the past you know, 22 years of my career and you think through to okay, post the 2001 dot-com bubble, people feeling, wow, I'm very over-allocated to private equity. My public equity market valuations are down. I'm quite concerned. Well, fast forward, and it turned out to be the best period of time to be putting money to work, kind of 01 to 04. And then correspondingly, a great time to exit, right? In 04 to 07. And I think you'll see a similar dynamic in the post-08 environment of putting money to work through the downturn when it probably felt the most painful, and so, you know, I think that seeing these two major dislocations prior to COVID, I think investors have realized they need to stay the course. And so therefore, we have not seen as much of a pause in general, but we have seen a little bit of a narrowing in on certain strategies, right? I think clients have become more selective in terms of where they want to commit capital in the midst of the COVID-19 crisis. And I think we see a tremendous hunger to be opportunistic and to find ways to sort of capitalize on the dislocations that we're seeing in the short term, and also big secular changes that may occur in the long term as a result of the pandemic. And I think the way where we're seeing this most right now is just the teeing up of capital for distressed opportunities, right? So I think investors you know, believe they're going to see companies that are going to need to restructure, that may go bankrupt, and that there's going to be opportunities to be strategic capital to help companies make it through to the other side of this crisis. And so, you know, anecdotally, obviously, we're seeing that in terms of our own strategic solutions funds that's been well-received by clients where we're looking to be this type of strategic capital provider to companies with you know, who need the balance sheet help through this crisis. And so back to the question of, you know, what's going to happen to the longer-term allocations here? You know, I think we may see a little bit of a pause, but, you know, we haven't yet really seen that. What may cause us to take another step back, though, is I think clients have not yet seen the full impact of markdowns in their existing private equity portfolios. Because as we all know, private equity valuations lag by at least a quarter, which means that most of our clients have not yet seen the March 31 marks flow through, right? And those are going to be write-downs pretty much across the board. And so that may give investors some pause before they continue. So beyond interest in sort of distress strategies, what are some of the other big conversations you're having with clients right now? So I guess one would be ESG and in particular impact investing, right? And so this obviously started pre-COVID, but continues. And I think we're spending a lot of time talking to investors about how to drive impact in their alternative portfolios. And you have a whole, frankly, new focus on impact private equity investing. How do we drive impact around the environment? governance, diversity, the income gap, education, you know, other sectors that people care about without foregoing economic returns, right? And so I think that's the, the big key here, which is that you can implement a private equity strategy, achieve expected private equity returns while also providing, you know, doing good and providing impact to the community. And so this has been an area where we've spent a lot of time educating clients where we've been looking to source some new investment strategies. We have a large business within GSAM, our imprint team, which focuses exclusively on sourcing and diligencing managers in this space. And that's certainly of interest to our clients, and in particular, the next generation of our client base. I think the other big conversation is around liquidity, right? I mentioned in the beginning, people taking stock of their portfolios. But I think for clients that have went through the global financial crisis... We see a lot of clients interested in being providers of liquidity. So, you know, are there ways to be a buyer right now of secondary stakes in private equity and private real estate portfolios? 
A lot of our clients participate in this through our vintage funds, right? Which do this on an institutional scale. But we also see clients looking to do this kind of on a one-off basis. And that might be participating in our kind of quarterly auction. So I think certainly some interest there. We don't see as much activity quite yet. And that goes to the idea that there's still a pretty large bid-ask spread. And marks are still pretty stale. So I think people are waiting to see where the marks shake out before they start you know, being active liquidity providers into that market. So, Kristen, I'm imagining you're in your day job pre-COVID, you spent a lot of time with clients in person, of course, on the phone a little bit, but a lot of in-person meetings. How have the relationships with clients sort of evolved post-COVID and not being able to communicate as much as you typically would one-on-one? It's been pretty remarkable how quickly we've all adapted to this, uh, to this new normal, both uh, those of us at Goldman Sachs and our clients. So, you know, I think while it's not as enjoyable not being able to be in person with a client or be face-to-face... I think being able to be over Zoom or, you know, in any type of online forum has proven quite effective and efficient. You know, and I think, frankly, given the dislocation we've seen, the rapidly changing markets and the increased volatility, the number of client engagements and client interactions is actually up quite significantly. I think clients are more than ever wanting to be in regular dialogue with those of us at Goldman Sachs, with those of us that cover clients or that can speak to specific opportunities. And I think we've been able to adapt pretty well to doing this in a, a virtual environment that's proven quite effective. So I don't think we've seen our ability to connect with clients or our ability to get important investment opportunities to them diminish you know, at all. So you know, we've switched to webinar launch calls, we're doing virtual roadshows, you know, all those things. Um, we were able to pivot pretty quickly. I think it'll be interesting to see if we continue to connect with clients this way, even once we get through the crisis. You know, so for many of our private clients, you know, they're not based in the New York area, which is frankly where a lot of our content specialists and product experts are based. So I could see a scenario where, you know, we move from the old analog phone call conversations with clients to doing more virtual face-to-face calls with clients over Zoom in the future. And how about leading your team? What have you learned about trying to run a team remotely over the past few months? (laughs) Well, I I guess I have the benefit of having a team that I've worked with for a very long time. And so I think that was a very good foundation for going into this environment of remote work from home. And I think the main lesson is really communicate and over-communicate. You know, I think people really want to feel connected. I think it's important to make sure that they all feel as informed as they would feel if they were sitting, you know, right next to each other day to day. And so, you know, look, we've done daily group Zoom calls to bubble up important information and posting, make sure we have, you know, FaceTime, even if it's virtual every single day. And I think, frankly, we're all being pretty productive in this new normal and people have adapted pretty well. You know, I think the challenge will be as we start to think about growing the business and bringing in new people, you know, how do we integrate them in an environment where we're not sitting next to them? And so, you know, we're thinking through that, you know, right now, particularly as we start to think about our summers that are coming in. But, you know, I think the most important lesson is just to be present and to be communicating and over-communicating and, and outreach to your, your team and checking in on them. Yeah, certainly an easier time to draw on the relationships you have than to build new ones, but, but not impossible. Anyway, thanks for joining us today, Kristen. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Jake. That concludes this episode of Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. Thanks for listening. And if you enjoyed the show, we hope you subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave a rating or a comment. And tune in later in the week for our weekly markets update, where we talk to a leader across the firm on their quick take on the latest in markets. This podcast was recorded on Monday, June 29th in the year 2020. Thank you very much for listening.
All price references and market forecasts correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the listener. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.